Uh, let's pray together. Jesus, and uh, it's recorded in Luke 11 that one greater than Solomon is here. We marvel as we read through this, the Proverbs and we read through Solomon and his wisdom and that the world would come, leaders and rulers from all over the world would come and listen to Solomon and his wisdom. No one else had the audacity to say that one greater than Solomon is here, and yet that's you. And you invite the world to come to you. It is through the same wisdom that you gave to Solomon that you also created the world and all that we see in it. And so Jesus, we, we humble ourselves before you as the wiser one. The one who through wisdom created all things and now invites us to the table to eat and drink of wisdom and to soak it up and, um, and to incorporate it into our life as the one who builds this house on solid rock, as the one who applies knowledge, as the one who lives skillfully and wisely. Let it be said of those in this room that that was a wise person, that that is a person of wisdom, a person who makes decisions that they'll never need to look back with regret on. Would you let it be so and give us ears to hear today in Jesus' name, amen. Proverbs chapter 1, you follow along as we read verses 8 through 19. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let's lie in wait for blood, let us ambush the innocent without reason, like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole, like those who go down to the pit, we shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. But these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. And such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. Verse 19 is the point. It's the main point. It's about greed. This is the way of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away their own life. So we're talking about greed today. That's the main point. Severe warning here. Greed will kill you. Uh, in the town I grew up in, uh, several middle schools joined together. Uh, and the students after that middle school would all come to one mid-high school. So there were a mix of middle schools that we didn't know the kids from the other middle schools that we would all come together as ninth graders. And I remember meeting a group of guys from another middle school in the summer before. 
And me and a couple of friends spent uh, a few weeks with them. And, um, and in the course of one afternoon, just one decision after another, there was a lot of shady stuff happening. And me and my friend didn't feel comfortable with them. Uh, but the last straw in the time that we spent with them was one afternoon, middle of a summer day, two or three o'clock in the afternoon. Um, they had proposed that we go do something that required a lot of money. And none of us had any money, uh, as typical eighth graders are. And they said, well, let's go over to Scott's house. Uh, they're out of town. And his parents own a couple of uh, laundromats and car washes. And they always just have bags of money that doesn't always get deposited right away. Let's go over there. And my friend and I just didn't know if we should go or not. And um, we went. We walked down the streets. So we went into their house uh, or went, into, went to their house and jumped fences and got in the backyard. And they couldn't find an open door. And so they started to climb up to the second floor and raise windows. And, and we just didn't feel comfortable. And so my friend and I stayed in the backyard and we just didn't like it. It just wasn't right. And we knew Scott and we knew he wasn't there. But they came out with bags of money. I mean, not literally a, a bag full of cash and coins, shirts and shoes. They just looted the house. 10 or 12 guys. And me and my friend um, parted ways with them and went somewhere else because we were terrified that the police would come. Now, listen, I hadn't thought about that event in years until I studied this passage this week. It's the kind of thing that greed lends a person to do, to cross lines that you didn't think you'd cross. And like many sins, greed can be incremental. It can start with fudging your timesheet here and there. I worked so many hours, and, and really you didn't work that many hours. It starts with, uh, with the desire to shortcut your taxes and to keep a little bit of money back for yourself. Most people don't end up like um, the two couple, the, the couple in Acts, right, that, uh, that said they sold the field for such and such amount and, and they held back a portion of it for themselves and, and Peter confronted them with this knowledge and they died. Most people don't get to that sort of outcome where it literally takes your life. But greed is described in this passage as a killer. And it starts small, early in life, and it will dramatically increase until at some point, if your greed overtakes you, you're doing things you never thought you would do. So the main point of this passage, greed kills you. Look at verse 19. This is the end. Uh, verse 18, they, they lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own life. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy. It takes away the life of its possessors. That's a serious warning. So the warning here is beware of greed. A greedy heart is a deadly heart. If you had an unknown heart condition that would kill you, you would probably want to know. I think about Hank Gathers, a basketball player in the 80s from Philadelphia, lived in one of the most dangerous projects in the city, the Raymond Rosen projects, and uh, he describes playing basketball all the time just to stay out of trouble. If you know the story about Hank Gathers, uh, he began his college career and transferred from USC with his teammate Bo Kimball to Loyola Marymount after his freshman year. 
And that Loyola Marymount, he was a three-time, first-time, first-team All-West Coast Conference selection. In his first season at Loyola, he earned the first of two consecutive MVP honors uh, in the tournament. And as a junior, he was named the West Coast Conference Player of the Year and began receiving All-American recognition. But early in his senior year in, in 1989, Hank Gathers was diagnosed with uh, an abnormal heartbeat after he collapsed during a game. And those who saw it uh, remember as he stumbled and fell, got up, took three or four more steps, and stumbled and collapsed and died at the age of 23 for the second time that season during the semifinals of the 1990 West Coast Conference Tournament. He had a deadly heart condition that was undiagnosed for most of his life. Greed is described like that. It's a condition that resides within your heart that will one day, Proverbs warns here, will kill you. If you had that kind of a heart condition, you would want to know. If something was lurking in your body, attempting to destroy you, you would want to be alerted. And so this sermon alerts you. It's your warning. There's greed in your heart. Acknowledge it and weed it out. Now let's get back into the text, knowing that we're going to land at verses 18 and 19 about greed. But there's a lot of work to do before we get there because there are a few other things in the passage that I want to point out. So let's get back into the text, verse by verse. In verses 8 through 9, Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. This is a formula that you're going to find all through the Proverbs, and it's Solomon teaching his son. And so we get a chance to listen in. Have you ever eavesdropped? Of course you have, right? You're focusing on the conversation here, but you hear somebody else over here, and so you're trying to do both at the same time, and, and you're nodding and agreeing, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you're really listening over here. Right? We get the opportunity to listen in to Solomon teaching his son. And, uh, and oftentimes in Scripture, we hear things and we see things that are addressed to uh, maybe a son or to a man or to a woman or to a male. I think about Titus. I think about instructions for older women, instructions for men, instructions for older men, instructions for younger men we can benefit hermeneutically the principle is that secondarily if it's not addressing you you don't get to just plug your ears and say well this doesn't address me Solomon's talking to his son so this isn't about me I'm a woman or I'm a I'm an older man or I'm not you know or whatever this isn't applied to all of us and he says my son don't forsake my teaching here we have rival invitations The father is inviting the son to listen and to heed his instruction and to listen to his mother's instruction. It's an invitation. But he's not the only one. Because in Proverbs, folly and sin also issue an invitation. There are two voices shouting. Proverbs 1 through 9 is the introduction to the entire book of Proverbs. And it forms an inclusio. And inclusio are like brackets that start a section and end a section. And so you can see rival invitations throughout Proverbs chapter 1 through 9. There are invitations, shouts to join and to come and to be a part of this particular way of life. It, It's like two dogs that fight for influence in your life. 
These two invitations you must choose between. Every person hearing my voice right now, you have a choice. I can't choose it for you. Uh, Fools will follow one way and the wise will follow another way. You will enjoy either the fruits of a wise life or the consequences of a foolish life. And it's only up to you. You're the only one of them through 23. Hear my instruction. Don't forsake your mother's teaching. If sinners entice you, do not consent. Verse 15, my son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths. Verse 19, such are the ways of everyone who is greedy. Uh, 120, wisdom cries out loud in the street. In the markets, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. How long will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you and I will make my words known to you. That's the voice of wisdom. And she's screaming, come in here, all who can hear. This isn't reserved for the educated, for the wealthy. Wisdom is available for everybody. And she screams, come in here. But there's a rival voice. In chapter 9, turn over to Proverbs chapter 9. This is the back end of the inclusio, the second part of the bracket. And it's the woman wisdom again, just like in chapter 1, verses 20 through 23. Look at Proverbs chapter 9. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set out her table. What do you, she's making a potluck, right? She's just setting all the stuff out and all the food is available and she's making a banquet available to everybody. And she sent out her young women to call from the highest places in town. Let everyone who is simple turn in here. To the one who lacks sense, she says, come and eat, eat my bread and drink my wine. And what does bread and wine remind you of? What banquet serves bread and wine? All throughout the New Testament uh, and all throughout the Bible, we see this as a gospel call. And so the woman, wisdom, cries out. But she's not alone. Look at verse 13. Chapter 9, verse 13. The woman folly is loud. She's seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house and then she takes a seat on the highest places of the town calling to those who pass by who are going straight on their way. If you're simple, turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Do you see the difference in her invitation and wisdom's invitation? Wisdom's invitation is public and it's gospel-centered and it's focused on Jesus and His redemptive act. And she's describing stolen water and secret bread. Verse 18, but he does not know that the dead are there and that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. That's the rival invitation. That's the rival invitation that parents must prepare their children for. Notice this is a father and a mother. Listen to your father. Listen to your mother. That's echoed throughout Proverbs. Proverbs 6, My son, keep your commandment and don't forsake your mother's teaching. Proverbs 23, 22, Listen to your father who gave you life. Do not despise your mother when she's old. Proverbs 31, 26, She opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. Isn't it true that nobody cares for a child like a parent? You've heard the phrase, nobody can love a child or that child like that parent. 
They, they look like that child. They see themselves in that child. Uh, I didn't realize this until we became parents. And, and I realized this when uh, I noticed that no one overreacts to the slightest offense aimed at their child on a playground like a parent, right? It's a mama bear moment. Have you ever had those moments when a little toddler is running next to your toddler and an elbow goes out and your toddler stumbles and then just something happens, earrings come out and you stomp and walk and grab the, you know, and you rebuke other kids because they hurt your kid. There's something about a mom and a dad, the way they love their own kid, right? Just something different happens. A protective instinct comes out. This is a father teaching her son and a daughter, a mother teaching a son and a daughter. But it's not just this natural relationship and a natural affection that we see played out in mind here. This is intentional and purposeful instruction and the teaching of a child. This is disciple making in your home. It's the parent's role to teach the children. Do not abdicate this responsibility to Sunday school teachers Public school teachers, daycare workers, nannies, babysitters, coaches, volunteers, Bible study leaders, grandparents, neighbors, or relatives. It is a parent's role to disciple their children. Isn't this true from the Shema? The passage that faithful Jews recite in Deuteronomy 6, 4-9. through Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command to you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. This is a parent's role. Oftentimes, the most uh, sincere conversations happen on the way to baseball practice or on the way to the grocery store or on the way back from somewhere. Just along the way, conversations happen. What does that sign mean? What is this about? What is that passage of Scripture about? What's this song talking about? Those kind of things describe a parent's responsibility to disciple their children. And that's what Solomon and Proverbs teaches Let's move on to the next passage. The next verse, verse 10, the teaching he's giving his son now is, if sinners entice you, don't consent. Enticing, it's a lure in the water. It's a temptation. It's a shiny hook. It's a shiny something that wants you to, to, uh, to give in to it. I was talking with my sister-in-law who visited this week, and, and I just said, I have a weakness. When I'm on, um, uh, you know, um, on my phone and I'm looking at something, I'm, I'm one of those guys that advertisers love. I, oh, that looks good. I'll have to click on that. And I'll, I, I'll have 40 tabs open of things that I thought were interesting in the moment. And I, I'm the guy who buys things from uh, China and from other places that just, oh, that looks neat. I'll try that. I'll try this. Um, that's enticing. Something can strike me. And so advertisers love me. I'm the guy that clicks on stuff. Solomon's warning is that if sinners entice you, don't give in. And listen, this is a solid principle that applies across the board. It doesn't just have to do with greed. If sexual or homosexual or adulterous sinners entice you, 
Don't consent. You have a choice. Don't give in to that. If drug-using sinners entice you, if alcohol-abusing sinners entice you, if morally self-righteous sinners entice you to be morally self-righteous, don't consent. If unloving, pharisaical, legalistic sinners entice you to be pharisaical and legalistic, don't consent. If racist sinners entice you, do not consent. If liberal, higher education or philosophical sinners entice you to stray from what you know is true, do not consent. If culture warrior sinners entice you with anti-biblical messages, do not consent. Don't give permission. Do not cooperate or participate. Do not approve or support, for that is the way of folly and sin. That's his warning. But look at the particular warning, verses 11 through 14. They're going to say to you, come with us. Let's lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all sorts of precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. I'm really sorry to do this to you. But I haven't been able to unsee this all week. When I read those verses, well, let me, doesn't it sound like a pirate? <laughs> if they say, come with us, let's lie and wait for blood. Let's ambush the innocent. Let's fill our house with plunder. Right? Doesn't that sound like pirate language to you? I can't unsee that. I'm sorry. All week long, I, I spent a whole afternoon reading this and then trying not to see this. And I said, just don't talk about it. Don't, don't put this in your notes, but I'm sorry. I just have, you might wish, listen, you'll never, no one will ever accuse me of sermon stealing. All right. <laughs> you may wish that I was stealing somebody else's sermons, but, but this is not, I didn't read this in a commentary, right? This is insight into my own kind of warped and twisted mind at times. So because I did this, let me just give you some random pirate facts. Okay. Julius Caesar was kidnapped by pirates. They demanded 20 talents of silver for his freedom. However, Caesar told them to ask for 50. When the ransom was paid and he was released, then Caesar went and raised a fleet, pursued and captured all those pirates and had them crucified. Uh, random fact number 12, I, I, I don't have a, a whole list, I just have a few. The modern day pirate accent that we know is not real, all right? It came from the 1950 Disney adaptation of Treasure Island. There was no universal pirate accent language, but there is a day, a talk like a pirate day. You can change your um, language on many social media sites to say, uh, talk like a pirate language. Um, MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, awards a pirate certificate to undergrads. You can go to MIT and leave with a pirate undergrad certificate. You have to complete a course in archery, pistol shooting, sailing, and fencing. And this isn't an accredited degree. It's just, a, it's just something some guy prints. Uh, and it does not legally authorize you to be a pirate. Uh, number 26. I've got a lot of these. So this is a waste of time. I'm sorry. The most successful pirate raid in history was Henry Avery's capture of the Indian treasure ship in 1695. The plunder was 600,000 
dollars worth of jewels and precious metals equivalent to $52 million today. Isn't that incredible? Finally, uh, pirate fact number 31. One unofficial method of defending merchant vessels against Somali pirates is to blast Britney Spears' music, and it has been reported to be effective. Now listen, I'm sorry. None of that has anything to do with the text other than when I read verses 11 through 14, it just sounds like pirate stuff to me. We're going to wait in ambush. We're going we're to ambush the innocent. We're going to murder folks. We're going to thieve and rob and plunder. This is all this language. And if a pirate ship rolled up right now as you're sitting on the shore and they shouted out to you on the beach, hey, come with us. We're going to do these things. 95% of you would never do it. Some of you might just for the story, but, but you would never do this. And yet greed is insidious in the sense that pirates will never show up with an eye patch, and they'll never say to you, let's go rob and plunder and beat some fools and take all their stuff. But this kind of thing happens for us in the modern day in, in insidious ways. It happens when you cheat on your taxes. It happens when you fail to pay a fine that you owe. It happens when you try to get around paying for things or when you, uh, God puts it on your heart to give something and you don't. Greed says, I'm going to keep what I want if it uh, increases my stature, if it makes me able to take a better vacation, if it means I'm able to do more, if it means that I, I can't um, store up my treasures in heaven, but I'll store them up here. Greed has that way and it doesn't have to be a pirate for you to be guilty of greed. And the warning in verses 15 through 18, do not walk with them, my son. Hold back your foot. That means don't even step on the path leading toward greed. Because their feet run to evil. Evil. So that's a harsh mischaracterization. How can greed be evil? Sounds like a harsh description. We often categorize evil as stuff we see in horror movies or Dateline specials. That's evil. But, but greed as evil? Greed being something evil? Well, let's close with this. Verse 19, Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. The Bible warns us over and over and over about greed and money and shortcuts to get more. Why? Jesus spoke of this topic more than anything else. Money. Why? Because money can occupy an idol-like status in our hearts, can't it? Can't it? You'll do a little bit more for money. Uh, you can entice somebody with some money. I remember asking a guy if he would come and clean out a flower bed at a church building that we used to meet at on Green Street. And we, it was opening day the next day and we just had too much to do. But this one particular flower bed was disgusting. And I saw this guy and, and I said, would you mind, I'll pay you. We just don't have time. We can't get to it. And, and he said, no, nah, I'm just exhausted. So I'll give you $200. He said, I, I would, but I'm just tired. I said, I'll give you $300. 
I'll give you $400. I finally gave the guy $500 to clean out this entire flower bed. Just to entice him. Just, now you may question my money management at this point. <laughs> but the point is that money can occupy a status that makes us do things we don't want to do. And it does that because it occupies this idolatry state in our mind. We can be easily obsessed in our hearts with a desire to own bigger and better and more and better uh, vacations and better trips and better clothes and better cars. And, And all those things point to a heart that is given or bent toward greed. Jesus said in Matthew 6, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Indicating if there's anything that you're not willing to immediately sacrifice, it could have idle status in your heart. Is there one possession that you say, I'm not going to get rid of that? Is there one thing that you say, well, I would would never get rid of this. There's one thing I'll hold back, and if it's a possession, you might have an indication of where your heart is. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart is. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. That's Matthew 6, 19 through 24. 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10 ends with the passage you all know so well, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. See what greed does? It can pull you from the faith. You can swerve from Jesus. You made a profession of faith. I will follow you no matter where you lead, no matter what you say, I will follow you. You get baptized in front of a group of people and you go under the water and you come out and you said, I will follow Jesus no matter where he leads. The truth is, Many people walk away from Jesus at the point of surrender, don't we? I want you to surrender this possession. I want you to surrender this desire. I want you to give this over. Paul said to Timothy, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils, and it's through this craving that people wander away from the faith and pierce themselves with many pangs. 1 Corinthians 5, 9-13, Paul says, I write to you in the letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And then he says, I'm not talking about the people in the world. You can't get away from worldly people. I'm talking about people in the church. But then he also says, if people in the church are sexually immoral, or if they're greedy, or if they're a swindler, or if they're an idolater, Do not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother or sister if they are guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler. Don't even eat with that person. Paul says, what do I have to do with judging people outside the church? That's not my thing. It's for me to judge those inside the church. That's who God tells us to judge. And God judges those but we are to purge the evil person from among you, and we do so through a process of disfellowshipping people. That's painful. It's a long list of things. And you think, that hit a little close to home, man. I, I mean, is that me? Am I 
a swindler? Do I try to get more from somebody? Do I try to increase the negotiation price so that I can have more? All those things affect us, and Proverbs warns it will lead to your death. So what's the antidote? How do we, how do we remedy this in our closing moments here? You might say, well, I've already blown it. I recognize greed in my heart today. What can I do about it? Well, the very first thing you have to do is repent and believe in the good news of the gospel. You might not be able to resist the temptation toward greed. Jesus resisted greed in the wilderness temptations. And throughout his entire ministry, Jesus consistently said, no, I will embrace sacrifice and humility on behalf of those who have embraced pride and selfishness and gain. On your behalf, Jesus resisted all temptation. So you know the way for you to resist temptation is to repent and believe in the one who did what you could never do. Jesus Christ resisted all temptation so that he could be crucified on a cross for sinners who were guilty of the sins that he was crucified for. The very first thing, if you want to combat greed, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It makes application everywhere for every desire, for every sinful desire. The place, the ark of safety that saves you from the turbulent waters around is in Christ. He is that ark. And to put your faith and trust in Jesus is simultaneously for you to um, uh, bury yourself in him and to be raised to walk in a new life with him. And once you're a believer, once you've repented and believed and put your faith and trust in Jesus, let me give you a couple of things that you can jot down. After you're saved, strive for contentment. See, greed says in your heart you need this. Contentment says you don't. I remember one time I went on a business trip to Atlanta. And um, the, uh, right when I walked in, I got my ticket. The lady was like, do you want to upgrade? You can upgrade for this. You can upgrade for that. I said, no, I don't want to upgrade. I think I might want to upgrade, but no, I don't want to upgrade. And there was this enticement. And then I got to this uh, the place to eat lunch. And they said, do you want to upgrade? Do you want to upgrade your size to this uh, higher size for this? No, nah, I don't. Maybe I do. I don't know. But by the time the trip was over, I feel like I heard upgrade, upgrade, upgrade 10 times. So I got to the rental counter in Atlanta and they, the lady said, do you want to upgrade your car to a premium? And in my heart, I was like, yeah, kind of. No, I want the worst car you have. What's the worst car you have? And I, I promise I said that. I said, I don't want an upgrade. I want the lowest car you have. What's, what's a car that's on the lot, the cheapest and the worst? And I, I forced myself into a position of contentment and I drove this, no offense if you have one of these, I drove this little Sentra for like a whole week and, and it was great. But in my heart, every time I got in it, I was like, I could have had that convertible Mustang. You know, I could have had that SUV that I really wanted to drive, but, but I'm in the Sentra and God bless it, man. If it leads to contentment, I want it. Strive for contentment. Seek downgrades, not upgrades. Number two, seek financial accountability. Maybe you need to let a brother or sister in Christ know, hey man, this is a temptation for me. I, I recognize greed. Uh, the Lord has revealed it in my own heart. And, and I just need somebody to hold me accountable. Help me not to buy more expensive. Help, just allow me, ask me how I'm doing every once in a while. Am I giving? Am I being generous? Am I 
Seek some financial accountability. Number three, right any outstanding wrongs. Proverbs is going to tell us later on, if you promise to give something and you don't, you're like a cloud that never delivers rain. Your word, if you promise to give something and you've withheld something, make it right. Go back and give more. If you've promised something that you didn't give, make it right. And part of right, righting any outstanding wrong, is, <coughs> excuse me, is if you've taken something, make restitution. If you skip the bill, if you skip the tax bill, go back and pay it. If you cheated on something, go back and make restitution. If they didn't charge you for something at the grocery store and you found it in your bag, go back and, and change it. If you cheated on your time cards, give the money back. Make things right where you previously were wrong. That'll, that'll be a great gospel introduction, right? Hey, I just need to confess to you that I stole this from you and I'm a believer and my pastor told me this week that I had to make restitution. Here you go. Do you want to talk about getting somebody's attention for the gospel? Make something right that you previously did wrong. A fourth thing, to combat greed. Live sacrificially and generously. Live in such a way that you're giving more than you're receiving. Laying up for yourself treasures in heaven. Well, Father, we thank you for this passage. Uh, I don't know that I would have ever preached on greed had it not been the next passage uh, in line here. So I thank you that uh, through the regular preaching of your word, oftentimes we stumble into topics that you providentially want us to hear, even when we wouldn't have chosen to preach on that topic or on this passage before. I pray that you would um, speak to us today, that you would give us wisdom and discernment, Help us to heed the invitation and the call to wisdom rather than the heed, uh, to heed the call and the invitation toward folly and sin. I pray that you would do a work among us and that uh, uh, weeks from now we would be hearing stories about how the Lord delivered us from an insidious greed that sought to destroy us from the inside out. Would you help us to live generously and sacrificially in a downgraded life for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.